this week's episode of the Dot to Dot podcast, I'm speaking to Erez Yoli, a research scientist at MIT Sloan School of Management, where he directs the Applied Cooperation Team. His research focuses on altruism, understanding how it works and how to promote it. I found this conversation fascinating and I hope you do too. So today I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Erez. And Erez, can you tell people who you are and what you do? I'm an economist. Um, I am a research scientist at uh, MIT Sloan, the uh, business school, and uh, I specialize in studying altruism. I uh, try to understand why people are altruistic, uh, why they're altruistic in the quirky ways that they are, um, and uh, also why it has those, those quirks, and then also try to use that to uh, get them to be uh, more altruistic in various practical contexts, like when trying to convince them to give more to charity or to volunteer or to conserve resources like energy and water or to take their medication so other people don't get sick or to wear masks or whatever. So basically some really good stuff. It's all great stuff that you're doing. It's making a difference. It's moving the dial um, where it comes when it comes to improving society, really. Well, we're trying. We don't always succeed. <laughs> I mean, I, then you know I get very excited as well because altruism... Um, is something that I'm fascinated by. I have a tiny window into it compared to to your massive experience and expertise. Mm. Um, but I love the work that I meant. I think I mentioned to you when we spoke last time about Marco Iacoboni, who's at UCLA and who's who's done research in using fMRI into brain activity around altruism. Um, but what's interesting from your perspective is it also comes from a background of being an economist because your PhD was your PhD in economics it was yes and that was at Chicago which is where the guy who came up with nudge theory um <laughs> was 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 well he is does he still work there does he yeah yeah, yeah. And so, so it's pretty an ama- pretty amazing place to have studied that because it's bringing all the stuff that everyone's interested I think at the moment every it's kind of the buzz nudge and what that means but what bothers me is nudge being used negatively whereas you're using it in a really positive way yeah i mean we sometimes get some some pushback on using it uh the way that we do people say that it's like manipulative and stuff and it's often the case that that you want to make sure that the nudges that you are using don't create that kickback, not because necessarily that won't work in this particular context, but rather because if you get that pushback, people won't want you back. They won't want to work with you again. They won't want you to use the solutions you came up with um, a second time. So so it is something that I think I'm not the only one who worries about this. Um, a lot of people worry about it. There's a term they're using for it now. They're, they're calling it sludge. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting because I know that the guy who did um, who who did this sort of work in the with, in the UK government, who's actually um, a colleague of someone else I know, and his book, Michael Halsworth. Oh goodness, no, I don't think that's his name. But he basically, this is where I'm awful. I can't remember names. But he um, he said he said basically the UK government were looking at these things and saying they they um, created the behavioural insights team. That's what they called it. But initially, the government were really reluctant to take on board um, advice because they saw it as manipulative, which really is quite ironic if you think about the fact that 
a government through the centuries has always been if you look at it that way manipulative but suddenly when you're looking at it within through the lens of using behavioral science people think you're doing something that's a bit magical or a bit um below the radar and which clearly is it isn't I mean, it can't. It it is and it isn't. What we are doing is we're <clears throat> we're uh, changing the decision environment so that people make uh, better decisions. Now, the word "better" is is kind of loaded. You you can make them make better decisions for for you, or better decisions for them, or better decisions for society, or you know, like marketers also are changing the the, the decision-making environment all the time in order to make people make better decisions for the companies that they work for, not for the individuals in question. So I, I think that um, it's a totally legitimate concern um, whether we are manipulating people to do things that aren't good for them or good for society, at least, and um, whether we should be doing that. And uh, that's a conversation we should be having at the social uh, level. I don't really resent it. Um, and I like to, I do think that it's important when you're doing projects that involve a fair amount of nudging to to step back and ask, will people look at this and be excited that you did it? Um, will most people look at the situation and think you did a good thing here? But is it not true that there's a, there's a piece around transparency as well? Because if you do if you do it with a certain level of transparency, obviously in some ways that means it doesn't work as effectively. But then on the other hand, it makes it far more acceptable to the people who are being nudged. So, yeah, I think people do appreciate that. And, and I think that uh, no, knowing that they're being nudged on the one hand, uh, you know, sometimes can backfire. On the other hand, sometimes can be it re- it's super context dependent. It really depends. Um, so, for instance, I remember at some point, um, you know, maybe let's like the first project, David, I'll make it a little bit more concrete. Like some of the projects that we've worked on, um, I'll give you some examples of nudges. So uh, we used a sign-up sheet to sign people up instead of had it, having them call into a hotline. We um, had, an, uh, that was one. So we were signing people up for a program that prevents blackouts. Uh, one way you could do it is you could tell them to call in 1-800-whatever. Um, and that to us wasn't a good way to do it because um, basically it was too private. We wanted to bring this out into the public. And we knew that would turn on people's uh, um, sort of civic duty and we wanted to do that. So what we did was uh, instead of doing that, we put up sign-up sheets in, in the, the apartment buildings uh, uh, lobbies. Nobody, nobody really felt like that was super manipulative. Like that's it's just a reasonable way to sign people up. Um, you know, we have some reason why we're doing it. We're trying to turn on their, their psychology when they hear that. Most it's very rare that I get blowback on that. Um, it just kind of feels like, oh, okay, I see. So basically, what you're saying is people ignore you. So you're trying to get their attention, and this is a good way to get their attention. Yeah. <laughs> so so it depends. Like here's another one. So we we send out a letter trying to people uh, get people to get out the vote. Now these letters with uh, these get out the vote letters, they're literally they're snail mail letters. Um, so they go out and and they include all of this verbiage that that is has been tested because they send hundreds of thousands of these out they test every word and you know that's in some sense that's super manipulative but like on the other hand people look at this thing and they're like it's pretty standard that that people test their 
language in advertisements and on websites and they kind of expect it and so it's one of these contexts where if it's expected then they don't feel like their rights are being violated it's like oh okay so what we did was in this particular case we put a sentence at the top that said somebody might call you to find out about your experience at the polls this was again a way of trying to make it feel like somebody cared like there was a little bit of of accountability and um, around voting and it worked really well and um nobody looks at that sentence and says, oh, that's nefarious. They think, oh, okay, well, are you lying? No, we actually, the org does call people. uh, And we just pointed out that they're going to do it. And since we noticed that, that we could do that truthfully and that that would make things feel a little bit like there's more accountability, that that seemed useful to us uh, in terms of nudging them. People don't look at that and think, oh, that's really, that's really nefarious. It's really gross. Like, I don't think they come off mostly at least most people don't feel like that's super manipulative it's just kind of like the smart engagement of the individual um so and i think part of the reason is because of the way that it's being done it fits within people's expectations and part of the reason is because we're doing it for causes that people generally think of, of as being good and they understand okay what you're trying to do is get people's attention so that they they do the thing that's good for society they're trying to get them to help prevent blackouts you're trying to get them to to help vote you're not trying to do something that like at least some major subset of the population thinks is like a terrible thing and, it's, and when you said before it's about uh doing the right thing and you gave all the different reasons that it could be you know whether it's the right thing by society whether it's the right thing by the individual the interesting thing it then comes in I think is what who decides what is right so what what are the moral guidelines around what is right and what is wrong and is that the same internationally as it is nationally or even within areas in a in a uh, country yeah it's it's not uh the same um so something that's true theoretically and empirically is that you expect what people think is good to vary um, and it does um, it, that has to do with the way that basically norms the underlying psychology works um, and uh, it's very much what you see the example that I sometimes give is uh, escalators you know how in London you stand on one side of the escalator and you let people go up on the other side Next time you fly into Midwestern cities like Denver or whatever, I don't know if you ever get a chance to go skiing. Uh, I have, yeah. I'm lucky. Yeah. When you get to the airport, it's jarring. Everybody just stands on the escalator and you can't go up. And you're like, <laughs> how could you do this? This is so inconsiderate. But everybody's just like, mm, whatever. Like, you know, here it's not expected to, that you do that thing. So like, in London, it's considered a very, a very impolite thing to do. In, in Denver, it's totally not, like nobody cares, and you just look weird for getting mad about it. <laughs> so um, that's a very trivial example, but it's it's definitely true. Like another example of this might be masks. So we've managed to make mask wearing something that's considered to be a good thing in most of the urban centers in the United States. The um, the rural areas, not really. Like we haven't really manage to change the norms in those communities that that effectively um maybe they're changing now there's there's some places where they are i mean you can look at the new the new york times just put out some interesting maps about this but like largely speaking i think what i just said is roughly true and and again variation in what people think is good and even within politics it's definitely true like some people think it's a great idea to have tariffs some people think it's a terrible idea to have tariffs and sometimes this is um 
reflective of you know legitimate conflict between two different groups maybe workers within within the country benefit from having the tariffs and most of the rest of us don't and there's a conflict between us so i think but there is also some things that kind of are like universal like not wasting um you know avoiding blackouts and okay hunter-gatherer societies don't have blackouts but like anywhere where there's electricity avoiding a blackout is good civic engagement it's generally thought, okay, like I, I'd rather my side be more civically engaged and the other side be less civically engaged. But like there's this democratic norm of like, okay, we want to promote civic engagement in general, voting in general. Um, so there's some things that you come across that like don't tend to vary that much or don't tend to be super controversial. And there's so much work to be done on those. Um, one that we work on that is like, say, a little bit more controversial, sadly, is climate change. So um, there's some small communities that deny the science um, and are sort of insisting that that what we're doing is wasting our time. Um, most of us think that's not really true. Uh, so, okay, we're going to ignore them on that um, and listen to the scientists and we're going to work on, on uh, uh, alleviating climate change and trying to change behavior so that people um, uh, reduce their carbon emissions and emissions in general. Um, so there's one we work on that's a little bit more controversial. And sometimes I run into somebody who says, oh, like you're doing this thing. And I think that's not that great. And I'm like, well, does it bother you that I do it? Like, no, you're just wasting, you're just wasting your time and other people's time. And I'm like, all right, well, if that's the worst I'm doing, it's okay. But it's interesting there how when you have a, um, a president who doesn't really believe in climate change, it obviously has a huge impact on those people that maybe doubted it it gives them a it gives them a reason to legitimize that doubt yeah for sure um which is which is really difficult there's a company that i i think you i don't know if i mentioned them to you when we spoke before but um company i'm working with at the moment called ecometrica um they measure climate emissions um they've got satellite and drone measurement uh for looking at carbon footprint climate emissions deforestation um, and providing up-to-date maps to corporates. A lot of what they're trying to do is to, and governments, is to actually persuade them that they want to engage with that data. Because um, it's it's not a case of, there's no regulations. In some of the cases, there are no regulations. So there's they could do with a bit of, um, a bit of advice from you, I think. It's tough. <clears throat> so the... As soon as you enter the political domain, the, the incentives at play are so complex that navigating them and being effective within them is its own beast. You know, what I tend to do is I tend to tap into people's existing norm enforcement psychology. That's a very particular set of basically set of tools that's built into your brain that like is is there to help you be a good uh, be perceived as a good person and and to uh also um enforce desired behaviors upon others um the norm enforcement involves both doing the right thing uh where right is defined socially um and uh, also help you know helping to ensure that others do the right thing but uh be a punishment and, and rewards social rewards and social punishment um and this is the kind of thing that that um people say is is really uh one of the main reasons why humans are able to cooperate so much but it's one very particular kind of psychology and it's it's complex enough to understand it and if you're trying to understand the political system when each country is different and each locality is different it gets really tough 
uh, it's really tough. It's really, really tough. Um, what do you think of, what did you think of the, did you, have you seen The Social Dilemma? I haven't, but I'm, I mean, it's now come up like two or three times in the last two weeks. I really got to see it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, not all of it is correct. And so I, I think if you're like me, you'll sit there getting a bit sort of agitated at the screen because I'm going, no, that's not how it works. But I think we briefly touched on um, social media before and, and how it's not, what's happening with social media is not as clever as it perhaps looks in terms of people manipulating um, there were those the algorithms have obviously benefited but there's data you can then use and, and sort of change things but it doesn't take hugely complex understanding of human psychology to be able to do those things is my view what's what's your view on that what do you mean uh, specifically, like getting them to share or post or? Yeah. So, I mean, things like um, the the addictive factors that they talk about, it comes back to what you were saying, actually, about social, social norms, social expectations, the fact that we want to appear a certain way to in in terms of group behavior so it plays on those it plays on the fact that we we like to be liked we like to be part of a group it plays very much on um our more primitive drivers so our limbic system more than it would do our prefrontal cortex or something like that yeah yeah i i think well wow there's i mean there's a lot going on with social media but the I think a couple things that do arise that are interesting about social media. One is that they allow for um, they sort of facilitate social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and so on are facilitating communication um, of uh, with more people. They're facilitating communication. So, like the 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 scale at which these norms are operating is kind of a little bit different, and the speed with which they're operating is a little bit different. The other thing that they're doing is they're sort of allowing for norm change at a faster clip than than maybe um, had been possible before. So, like, I think part of what's going on with Me Too, um, and I think this is a similar thing that's happened in Ar- the Arab Spring, is that what you're getting is the ability to communicate that you're enabling communication that allows for norm change in particular. Um, that that technology was a little bit more locked down before, um, and it's a bit like you're you're enforcing freedom of the press of a very particular and weird kind, but a freedom of the press that that didn't exist in some places. Um, and uh, I don't know exactly. I mean, Me Too happened in places that had freedom of the press. Um, but gave a voice to people who were able to sort of change the change the nature of the discussion, and then and and consequently really change norms. I mean, it it uh, it had a real meaningful effect on on norms, and I don't think I I can claim to really understand why, but it seems that seems to me the case. Uh, so that's how it it. Um, to me relates a lot to norms there's also other really interesting questions that that arise for instance like is it good for the individual if they have facebook well 
on the one hand, Facebook serves as a way of com- connecting with people that are similar. You know, Facebook groups always talks about this and how about how like Facebook says uh, a huge amount of um, uh, time on Facebook is being spent in groups. Um, and that seems like they're bringing people together and they're being, you know, there's this online offline thing that's going on that they're enabling. And I think that's, that's to some extent legitimate. Um, there's also the fact that it helps you reconnect with people from the past. That's really nice. But then there's this other aspect where you're spending all this time, like taking photos of nice things to make it look like your life is really great. And now you're, you're like going to places because they are, you know, Instagram worthy. And that's, you're investing in showing off in a way that you didn't have to before. That, you see- sorry, sorry, Eris, I didn't mean to. No, please. Now that's really interesting because you, you've probably seen some of the research that sh- suggests that narcissism is on the increase. That doesn't mean that, I mean, it's, it's a bit like mental health, isn't it? We're all on a scale of mental ill health to mental well health. And of course there are some um, extremes, um, but it, with the same thing with narcissism, the people that it unleashes and, and per- perpetuates a behavior that might be there on a small scale, but it enables it on a larger scale. It kind of demands it. Well, yes, that's true. It demands it as well. Right? Like you have to, you're kind of required to put your your best foot forward on social media. Um, and a lot of, uh, there's a, there's been some, some pushback and that pushback is somewhat norm enforced. So like when, when you talk to somebody who's younger than I am, they tell you like none of us are on Facebook. We're technically on Facebook. We spend no time there. Yeah, and instead we're on things like uh, you know for a while it was Snapchat. Now it's like Instagram managed to apparently like um, erode Snapchat's user base and and bring everybody back to Instagram. So people are like spending a lot of time on Instagram and stuff. And they and they say like part of the reason is that because it was forcing you to like live your life like a brand. And what we want to do is like, you know, communicate with each other and have fun together, but like not like constantly feel like we're, we're uh, living like a brand. So things like stories that disappear allow you to, to use um, social media in this other way that things like Facebook and, and Instagram's original, uh, um, what they call, man, I'm so old. <laughs> You're not old. I'm a lot older than you are. Um, what's the Instagram uh, uh, profile called when where you look at the somebody's? Oh man, this is yeah. Um, or profile? I don't know. What is it? Oh, your page, your grid, your grid. That thing, whatever that thing is. Yeah, the grid. You know, that that's brand making, and and people are saying you guys are forcing us to spend all this time brand making. We don't want to do it. And there's kind of been this collusive arrangement amongst younger people that say, no, we're not going to go on that. We're going to spend our time here. And that's a bit of a collusive, uh, like norm enforced arrangement by by this social group uh, to fight back against social media. And I, I think that's a, a really interesting phenomenon. It is. It's really interesting. It's fascinating. Um, well, uh, what, so for anyone listening, I'm mucked up the time, which means I don't have as much time as I would like with errors. I might be able to borrow some of his time again in the future. But just quickly, um, like, I'd love to hear what you're working on at the moment. What's go if, if you can share. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, let's see. 
I'll tell you about the three projects I think are most interesting. And then you tell me what you want to hear more about. Um, so one is we've got a longstanding collaboration with a digital health company that builds um, dumb phone platforms for supporting tuberculosis patients. And our job has been to build in the behavioral science into that platform uh, at a sort of deep level. Um, and we work with them to test how the platform is doing uh, out in the field. So that's one. Um, a second one is we have a social media platform that we have built um, not uh, by choice because we are terrible entrepreneurs, but um, it, we have built it because nobody else was building it. And it's a, uh, a, pro, a platform for motivating more and better uh, charitable giving. So try to get people to both invest more. Uh, it's like a LinkedIn for charity, and it's trying to get them to invest in a charitable giving in the same way that they might invest in their resumes and professional experience. Um, sort of thinking about the fact that Charity provides this opportunity for people to show who they are and what their values are, but we're kind of robbing them of that uh, opportunity because right now, if I wanted to know where you give to charity and what you care about, it would actually be pretty difficult for me to find out. And so I'm trying to give you a platform for being able to, to say that while being considerate of your uh, privacy concerns. We're not going to be advertising amounts and things like that. Um, so that's the second project. And then uh, the third one, uh, I'll mention is a theoretical project where we are thinking about what kind of guidance do you give to people if they're trying to write uh, good PSAs. So let's make this even simpler. Suppose that what I want to do is write a sign. Maybe it's an office sign. I know you guys probably have all forgotten about what that thing is with the office. Um, but uh, remember back in the days when we used to go to offices and nobody would clean their mugs at the office sink and they would just kind of leave them in the office sink and it was gross. Suppose that you wanted to like solve that problem. Now you could stand at the office sink and you can just kind of look mean and that would work. Um, <laughs> But you have work to do. You don't want to move your workstation to the kitchen. Yeah, you know, there's, there's other there's other constraints. And so what you really want to do is design a sign that you put over the sink and for it to work. Um, you don't want to put a webcam there. That would be too mean. Um, you just want to design a sign. How do you, what do you say on a sign like that? How do you design a sign like that? Um, that came up for us. Uh, literally, that actual example came up for us in one of our offices. But uh, also, um, it came up for us when we were thinking about how to design better signs for recycling. It turns out that people are terrible at recycling, not because they don't recycle, but because they recycle too much. Um, they recycle things they shouldn't be recycling, and that ruins the recycling stream uh, and makes it so that people have to throw out bags and bags of what would otherwise be good recycling because they do what's called aspirational recycling. And the only tool we have, we can't stand there at the recycling bin and be like, whoa, 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 don't put that coffee cup inside. Like, it's not practical. So we have to design a sign that does that for us. How do we trigger that psychology with just a sign? And then the third place where it came up was during COVID. So in fact, this project about recycling signs got killed because COVID came around and everybody left the offices. Uh, we were going to do it here at MIT, but then suddenly everybody was asking us for hand-washing signs and social distancing signs and things like that. And we were like, oh, wait, 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 wait. We know how to design signs. We've been thinking about that for recycling. So uh, the third project is around uh, what kind of guidance do you, do you provide people who are doing these PSAs and uh, in particular designing good signage? Yeah. I want to hear about all of them. Um, <laughs> they're all massively important and incredibly interesting. Um, 
I guess the the second, oh, I mean, the third one's so relevant to what we're doing and how we're living today. It's massively important because if it's around hand washing, it's actually around stopping the spread of disease, which is actually around saving lives, which is, I mean, you can't, you can't quantify the importance of something like that. I economists have this thing called value of statistical life, but don't. Well, tell them. okay, you're an economist. I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> because everybody hates us for it. <laughs> well, then, well, then the second one I I find fascinating because I um because I, I have a real interest in the fact that if we if we look at our brain as the the slow thinking brain, the fast thinking brain, and the slow thinking brain is the more advanced area of our brain, and that's where we we gain satisfaction from contributing to society as I'm not telling you things you don't know I'm just saying this for the listeners and that to me is what we need to encourage more of because that slow thinking is being eroded by things like technology and social media and the busyness of everyday life where we're in fast-paced mode the whole time and so if you're building something that enables and encourages that it's massively important for society it's interesting that you say that the slow thinking part of the brain is you have like this uh, preference for it. I actually uh, often think of the slow thinking part of the brain as the bad part. Like, well, I guess, I mean, in some situations it is. So when I'm working with leaders, if they only think from a rational viewpoint, so they have a rational analytic viewpoint, which would be the prefrontal cortex, the slow thinking brain, then I would be encouraging them to use more intuitive thinking and gut feel because that's really important. I mean, you, you know, it's important to weigh them both up or include them both in for effective decision-making. One over the other is, is not pre- preferable. But um, but when you're thinking, I, I, I don't know, I have, yes, I do have a, pr- a preference over the slow thinking in many ways because it it's where we look for meaning and we search for purpose and we give back to society. Um, but then the, the, the fast thinking too, because I love snowboarding, I love parties, I love all the, all those fun things that you could say very crudely, you could say fit into that sort of style of thinking. So, uh, yeah, I'd wonder what somebody like Steven Pinker would say about this conversation. I'm not really an expert on it, but there's so many things that are so sophisticated that are going on subconsciously. Um, Anyway, raises a, that's probably a, a discussion for a whole podcast series. But um, I, I was just uh, sort of surprised to, to, to hear it because I guess I don't really think of it that way. And in fact, I guess even in my work, to bring it back to that, I don't really think of it as necessarily that what we want to do is engage the slow thinking part of the brain. So let's think about that second project that I mentioned, the one on charitable giving. That's the one where perhaps this this distinction arises the most. So a major problem that people have, if I don't know if you've read uh, the stuff that Peter Singer puts out on this or, or others in the effective altruism community is uh, put out on it, but a major problem that we have is that people will give, they're really generous, but they don't really think about the impact that they're having when they give. And a major goal of the effective altruism community, and we can discuss whether this is one that what we should have in general or not, is to make people more thoughtful about their giving. In other words, to move it from the fast system to the slow system, as you're suggesting, would be good. And I think there are benefits to that. Um, so as they point out, the a lot of people are sending money to charities that really do nothing. Um, and if we could just move some of that money over to charities that are really effective, we could save a lot of lives because there are charities out there that 
they are able to save a life for something between three thousand to five thousand dollars a life. That's just nothing. Uh, I mean, think about it. That's like a, a you know, oh, I decided I wanted a sunroof and, and some leather seats on my car, and now um, half of your listeners feel super guilty about buying leather seats and sunroof, right? So, so uh, it's really it's really nuts, like how cheaply we could save lives if only we would divert some of the funds. We would save a lot of lives, um, and that's Stephen Pink. That's um, uh, Singer's point, Peter Singer's point. Uh, he makes this, he's got this book called uh, uh, The Life You Can Save. And then he has a newer book on it, uh, which I think is called The Most Good You Can Do. Um, both of which are really recommended. There's another book out of uh, uh, Oxford called 80,000 Hours that covers this. And part of the, what our platform is doing is indeed trying to get you to think more carefully about the charities that you're doing by by creating this repository of all your char- charitable donations in one place that sort of represent you. Now you have some incentive to think about, okay, well, how do I want to be represented in this way? Um, and, and the idea really is, as you're suggesting, to move uh, to move you a little bit into the thoughtful domain. But it's a bit of a mix because to some extent, you also want that gut reaction. Like, uh, you know, I have this gut feeling, I want to look like this kind of person. And there's no sense in which we're discouraging that too. Uh, whereas the effective altruists would want us to. Um, so that's, um, uh, that is, that's one of the places where this, this dual system thing does show up um, and, uh, and plays an important role. I think we should do a conversation with you, me and Stephen Pinker. <laughs> Uh, I'll, uh, I'll do the nodding and listening and you guys can talk <laughs> i can't keep up with that guy uh, maybe soon i'll have the hair if i keep this up with the uh the covid uh the covid haircut but uh, your hair is fantastic <laughs> his hair is fantastic that guy has has a head, head of hair <laughs> um as I, i've got i've got to jump because i screwed up the times um i would love to continue talking and i think when people listen they will want me to continue talking because it's so much interesting stuff yeah i'm more than happy to we'll, we'll schedule something in. that'd be amazing uh, thank you so so much and um i look forward to catching up with you again soon yeah i look forward to chatting more i found it fascinating speaking to Erez. i hope you did too I unfortunately mucked up the timing, so we didn't have as long as I would have liked. But if you want to know more about the work that he's done and is doing, please look at the links in the show notes. If you want to know more about the work that I'm doing, the links are also there in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening.